This is Metrics and Chill, where you'll learn practical strategies to drive consistent and predictable growth. In this episode, I got to chat with Marcus Sheridan, partner of Impact Marketing Agency, prominent speaker and author of They Ask, You Answer. We talked about how you can drive more consistent and predictable growth by creating more helpful, relevant content for your audience that helps them make better purchase decisions. You'll learn how 70% or more of sales decisions are made before the sales call actually takes place and how you can use content that actually impacts your bottom line to increase that, how marketing can work with sales to produce content that sees instant ROI, why you need to put pricing on your website, and more than that, why you actually need to teach visitors how your industry prices itself, along with a ton more. There are not that many episodes that I would say are 100% applicable to all the B2B listeners that tune in, but basically if you've got a website and you want to increase sales over the next year, you're going to get something valuable out of this. Give it a listen and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on Metrics and Chill. Uh, Like I said, honored to meet you finally. Um, Thanks for being flexible with the scheduling a little bit. Um, I've heard great things. I've watched uh, they ask you answer, you know, content and have learned a little bit to prep for the interview. So thanks for being willing to come on and share some of the yeah. information. Yeah, let's make it happen, man. I'm always up for this. All right. Awesome. So um, I guess for people, you've got a massive amount of followers on LinkedIn, obviously you do speaking gigs everywhere, but for people who aren't familiar with uh, your writings, teachings, can you give like a 30 second elevator pitch of like who you are, uh, maybe in relation to like the speaking side to impact yeah. to all of that? Yeah. So uh, here's the quick, quick, uh, thirteen-year story in uh, less than sixty seconds. Started a swimming pool company with two buddies in 2001. We almost lost the business in 2008, 2009 during the crash, and it was during that time that I really started to lean into those phrases like inbound marketing, content marketing, learn about it. And what I heard in my simple pool guy mind was, you know, Marcus just obsess over their questions, their worries, their fears, their concerns, and be willing to address those on your website. And so I said, that's what we're going to do. And we called the strategy they ask you answer. We said, we're going to be the best teachers in the world when it comes to, in our case, fiberglass swimming pools. And we would go on uh, to uh, quickly become the most traffic swimming pool website in the world. And we became a manufacturer. So we became a uh, B to B to C company, essentially, right? And uh, we had the first franchise of fiberglass pools in the U.S. as well. And I sold the manufacturing. I sold the um, I sold the franchise. But during this whole journey, I started uh, an agency, and uh, I started speaking about the things that I was doing with my pool company, and that agency became Impact. And uh, today, Impact helps companies all over the world implement. They ask, you answer, which uh, the book now has done uh, over 100,000 copies, and it's been an amazing ride, and I've been speaking full-time for about 10 years, a little bit more than 10 years now on the subject. And so I'm incredibly passionate, ultimately, about trust and how we generate that with the way we communicate. Sometimes we call that marketing. Sometimes we call that sales. Sometimes we call that leadership communication, but ultimately, that's what I'm really passionate about. Yeah, I think one of the things as I was studying some of your content, I love the way you see the world and like look at this stuff that we talk about that we use jargon for and like just through these different angles, like you call it trust building versus just like marketing. It's like, well, yeah, but at the end of the day, the person just needs to trust you in order to come in with higher intent prospects. Um, And then- You know, to that, that, Jeremiah, I think it's, it's a really important point. And I think the best 
communicators online, um, you know, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, whatever it is, somebody once told me something, it's always stuck and it's very simple. That is, it's dumb not to dumb it down. And at first I was like, what do you mean? Don't we want to impress folks? But what impresses someone is when you explain something so clearly, so simply, so incisively that they just are able to say, that makes so much sense. You know, what defines success for me, let's say, if I'm with an audience, is at the end, they say, this is so obvious. Why are we not doing this? Not that they say, my goodness, he's a genius. This is crazy. I mean, whoa, do you see what he did? That's not the goal. The goal is that the audience says, this is obvious. That's the sign of great teaching. That's the sign of great communication, right? And that's how we have to think when it comes to business. Yeah, that's what I felt when you said, you said, like, I was watching one of your speeches on YouTube. You said, some people call this content marketing. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, there's a way, there's like technical terms we use or people build professions around it. It's like, right. But at the end of the day, all it is, is, as you say, obsessing over what your target audience is feeling, thinking, the questions that they have and saying, now let's just create asynchronous content to answer those questions. You can call it like content marketing. You can call it like, oh, we're going to be on YouTube as a tactic or whatever. But like, really, you're just trying to obsess over answering people's questions so that they feel comfortable. And um, one area where I wanted to take this, so we'll we'll kind of free flow now. I've got so for listeners, I'm gonna I'm gonna tee this up for listeners. What we're gonna be talking about today is. Um, we're going to talk around the the lack of communication skills that Marcus is seeing within the B2B sales world. And then we're going to get into some of some specific questions around that they ask you answer framework to, to kick off one area where I wanted to go. Um, it feels like this is a really obvious place. Um, I see a lot of talk on LinkedIn right now, and you can see like the movement of conversation toward marketing being responsible to drive pipeline and revenue by driving higher intent prospects. There's a lot of buzz around like stop driving, stop focusing on, you know, uninterested MQLs, get them to sales qualified leads, you know, drive more intent. I think like in a way it's one of those things where like the stuff you've been teaching for years, that's the whole point of it is like, well, if you address their objections, you tell them what they need to know you treat the website, the content, like an asynchronous salesperson, then by the time they come, they're coming with higher intent and they're ready to buy. And I know you've got like loads of of examples of that, but it feels like you were championing this way before with this framework where like, it's just kind of come into vogue now. Yeah. Like I'm, and I've been saying uh, for a decade, you start at the bottom of the funnel with, with your content period. It's just no question about it. In other words, when we say bottom of the funnel, it's like, if the sales team isn't hearing that question, that should probably not be a part of your, let's call it content efforts on your website. But yet that's what we do. We produce fluffy stuff. It might get even a few likes and shares or whatever you want to call it, might get read, but did it at the end of the day produce any actual sales? Did it talk to the person that's serious about the thing? So we start at the bottom. We work our way out. Most companies, especially in the B2B space, they start 
somewhere outside of the, we'll call it the traditional funnel. And even though people have diff different definitions of the funnel today, let's just go with the norm here for a minute, right? Which is they start outside the funnel in the land that I call the land of fluff. It's not necessarily going to help the sales team, which that's a problem. And it's not going to answer some of the very specific buyer-based questions that they want to know. So that's been an issue for a long time. I don't know why it's so hard for uh, – it's like to me, people say, huh, I hear content marketing takes a long time to work. No. <laughs> no, it should not. It could start working for you tomorrow if it's the right stuff. Right. Produce a piece of content today that helps your sales team tomorrow because they are now immediately integrating it into their sales process. That's a win. That's shortening the sales cycle. But you talk to a lot of sales teams in the B2B space, especially, and you say, so um, how often do you review the content that the, the web team is producing? They're like, well, I mean, not very much. And how often do you intentionally integrate that into the sales process? And they're like, well, you know, I try to some. It's like, no way, man. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that's supposed to work. I should be working incredibly well together, and they should be totally jacked every time a new piece of content comes out for marketing because they know it's an issue that their prospects are having and that they can immediately integrate it into the sales process. Why do you think, what do you think is the cause of a lot of these, like, I'll especially pick on like B2B SaaS, right? Like, yes, there's, there's a lot of the audience that listens to the show, a lot of the people that talk about this topic online. Why is there so much hesitancy? So I get from, like, I've worked with small businesses before. I've consulted with small businesses. Um, you obviously got your start, like you ran a business, right? So I feel like for you and for people that have been in that space, you're just like, I can't be everywhere at once. I want to be as helpful as possible. I want to answer their questions. You, like you think about it, like probably very logically of like, why would I want to try and like twist someone's arm? I'd rather talk to people that are already convinced and know they want to buy from me when they come in. That's probably what most leaders want. So why is there so much resistance in like from what you've seen to things like putting pricing on the page yeah. or like answering a lot of specific questions? Like why is there such a, is it just legacy thinking that like, we're only going to answer 30% of their questions, then drive them to sales? It's a lot of legacy thinking like old smoky boardroom style thought processes that still exist within the B2B space. Um, the most prolific uh, cancer that happens in the B2B space is we're different. Uh, we're special. Uh, but you don't understand. We have a very customized solution. These are the lies that we tell ourselves when, if I go to anybody and I say, is trust fundamental to your business? You're like, oh yeah, absolutely. Is trust going to be fundamental to your business in 20 years? You're like 100%. So that's the universal truth for any business. So at that point, you boil it down to, okay, so really the obsession we've got to have is how can we become the most trusted voice in our space? Can we agree to that? Like, yeah, yeah, I can agree to that. So if, if you find that common ground, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, so what would induce more trust? You see, we spend so much time wasted debating in boardrooms and in marketing meetings and leadership team meetings of the things that we should and shouldn't be talking about, what we should and shouldn't be showing, when we could easily, easily define it if we simply said, yes, but will that thing induce more trust? If the answer is yes, then we move. Let me give an example. All right, so if 
someone says, well, should we, should we talk about cost and price on our website? Quickly, there's all these reasons why we shouldn't. No, no, stop with the reasons why you shouldn't. Would it, if we did, potentially induce more trust? Yes, absolutely. Okay, now we discuss how we do it. You see, you got to live in the solution, and too often we're living in the problem. Should we discuss our competitors and how we compare to them? Oh, gosh, we couldn't do that. Yeah, I know, but do they ask the sales team right now? Well, they do, but would it induce more trust if we did it honestly? Yes, it would. Okay, should we talk about who our product is and is not a good fit for? Well, I mean, gosh, I mean, yeah, I mean, we do talk about who it's for. Yeah, but do we definitively, explicitly explain who our product is not a good fit for? Because that's what elevates the trust barometer more than anything else. Mm. Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if we could do that. Of course you could do that. Would it induce more trust? Yes, it would induce more trust. And so you start with that. Now, where people get screwed up, Jeremiah, is the is what you might call the the what does this actually look like? The fine print. So for example, you take cost and price. I have SaaS companies say, we put price. Okay, you've got the dumb, good, better, best model on your website, but you haven't explicitly explained how it works in your industry. Listen, folks, if you have a SaaS product, let's say, and you want to talk about cost and price. The most important thing you can do is explain how that works in your industry before you necessarily give all your cost and price. What I mean hmm. by that is if you talk to a salesperson, traditional, and they say, I don't want to talk about cost and price because I want to give value first. Okay. There's a lot of truth to that because you don't want to commoditize by slapping numbers on a page. What, what decommoditizes? Education. Always. Knowledge, education, that's what decommoditizes a product or a service in the marketplace. And so there's four fundamental components of what every cost price page should include. What drives cost up? What drives cost down for that particular type of, let's say, software or something that solves that problem? Right. Okay? <clears throat> Why are some companies so expensive? Why are some companies so cheap? Now, the first two are not the same as the second two because – the first two is, like, generally speaking in the industry, what are the price drivers up and down? Three and four, generally speaking in the industry, why are some companies more expensive? Why are some companies less expensive? There's all types of reasons for this. Now, the fifth part of a pricing page is where do you fall? Where do you fall? And so that's very, very powerful. Nothing pisses someone off more than a tab on your website that says pricing you click on it, and it's a form that says call for quote. Yeah. That is utterly ridiculous. And, and what's so simple for many people to do, and are listening to this right now, is you could easily explain different scenarios and roughly where they might fall. So, let, you know, you could, you could say something like, okay, so let's say that you're such and such type of business, and you have this such and such need, and here's the size of your such and such, and you go down the list. Roughly, in that case, here's what you might spend. And so let's look at some different tiers as to what you might spend. Now, all of a sudden, the person's saying, okay, okay, uh, this makes so much sense to me. But rarely do they do that. And that's how you define value in the marketplace. They have to learn value from you. Pricing is about teaching value. It's not just about a small portion of it is your actual price. Right. 
Yeah, no, I love this framework. Um, first of all, going back to what, where you started this, I love the guiding factor being, um, would this induce trust? I've always gravitated towards people that have like a really simple question that sort of like- It's a moral umbrella. compass. Yeah, exactly. That like it guides the decision. And then exactly what you said, it's not that that means that like all problems go away. It just means it's, if the answer is yes to the guiding question, then it's just now it's time to put on a critical thinking and problem solving has to figure out the right way to do it. Um, you know, like you see this with people like Elon Musk, right. That are like, the mission is to extend the light of human consciousness. Like some of them get really, really big or Jeff Bezos saying like, what is never going to be out of style? People will always want faster serve, like better customer service, faster delivery, like better quality products. As long as it's doing those three things now, how to do them and how that plays out in each scenario. But I love, I love that guiding framework that you gave. Um, Most companies don't have that, Jeremiah. That's why this is a big deal. Yeah. It's, it's the guiding framework in the boardroom where someone is allowed to bring it back to center and say, but does it, make the lives of our customers simpler? Does it make it faster? Does it, to your point about Bezos, right? In this case, does it induce more trust? Soon as we get the answer to your point, that's when we start to earn our money. That's when we get to exercise our dumb degrees, right? It's like, this is why you're getting paid. Any hack can say why something won't work and why you shouldn't do it. The great ones live in the solution. Those are the ones that I want to surround myself with. And for years in the B2B space, I've heard, but I don't know. You don't understand. We're a B2B service-based business. That is the biggest reason, in fact, Jeremiah, that I started an agency was to show everyone, this ain't about pools. If you think it's about pools, you're way off your rocker. This is about human psychology in the way we behave. Hey, just a quick interruption. In past episodes, you've heard guests give advice like... The first step is just like actually measuring and monitoring, right? Which sounds very fundamental, but a lot of companies don't even do that, right? If you ask for like, hey, do you have a monthly kind of report of like what's happening in the funnel? It's like, oh, well, we have this over here and we have this over here and we have the traffic data and GA. So the first thing I think is like build out you know, a presentation uh, that you're updating every single month. Or it's way easier if you have all this stuff being centralized somewhere and can look at it. And I promise that's completely unprompted. We try to book smart B2B leaders and learn how they're driving more predictable growth. And they end up sharing advice like that. And Databox makes it easy to do all of that and more. You can track your marketing, sales, revenue, and CS performance all in one place. It lets you build custom dashboards and view metrics from over 80 tools side by side. You can schedule PDF reports that automatically update your data in real time and send to your team or your clients. You can even set up custom Slack alerts that alert you when you hit your goals or when numbers spike or dip. If you want to try it totally free, just go to databox.com or click the link in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. In the marketplace. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, yeah, I, I love this. I'm getting fired up about it. So um, it sounds like 
would it be fair to articulate another way to see yourself if, if it's your responsibility to sort of own content or own the website or thinking like in a bigger B2B org, maybe like the marketing leader should be thinking about their website as one way I've articulated it is like an async salesperson that's trying to answer all these questions that people have, give them the information. And that are you really trying to see yourself almost as like one step further than that, I think, is seeing yourself as a guide to advise that unique customer to the best solution for them, even if that means not you. Is that is that one step too far? Like I've I've heard um I know April Dunford talks about positioning um in her book and being willing to willing to sort of like foster rejection. Like, is there a world where she she leads people through this really nice framework that basically at the end is like, here's like three ways companies in our industry are solving this problem. Here's what we believe the best way is. And we built a service or a product around that. If you agree with us, then you're going to love us. And here's why. And here's where our pricing reflects that. If you don't agree that this is the best way. So a good example of this is Basecamp probably is the most opinionated project management software company like I, I'm aware of, right? Monday.com, Asana, ClickUp, all great products, right? But they sort of seem like they've said yes to like all feature requests, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Basecamp is like, we actually believe that the best way to work remotely is da 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 da, da. and we literally built the product around that. If you don't agree with us, here's you know here's a link to Asana. Like go check them out because you probably won't like us. But if you agree that Calmer is better, and you agree that all these problems are symptomatic of like this other software, then you're gonna love Basecamp, and we're actually the best for you. And there's like a courage that they have to being willing to say that. Do you think that's like too far for most companies, or is that where most companies should try and end up being willing to say, "Here's what we believe. Here's the way we solve the problem versus our competitors." And if you don't agree with us, that's okay. There's probably a better solution for you out there. Yeah. So this is a glorious conversation. That's actually the starting point. The starting point. Because if you're able to say that as a business, it impacts everything. The happiest day in the life of a business is it when they say, I think I know what we are. No, 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 no. It's when you know what you're not. And they are different. You might think you know what you are. No, you know what you are when you really know what you're not. Because that's when you no longer take on the job that's not the right fit, the customer that's not the right fit, the feature that's not the right fit, because it's not who you are. The moment you're willing to say what you're not in business is the moment you become dramatically more attractive to those who you are a good fit for. So the fact that Basecamp says, hey, you can roll different ways. We happen to know how we roll. And this is what we believe. It's cool if you don't roll like us. But if you roll like us, you found your place. That's awesome. Because the whole time the person's saying, man, yes, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, I did this early on, like 12 years ago. I said, now listen, doing my pool company. If you want a pool that's longer than 40 feet, we're not going to be a good fit. If you want a pool that's wider than 16 feet, we're not going to be a good fit. If you want something that's incredibly customized, like crazy shape, size, we're not going to be a good fit. But if you're looking for a low maintenance pool that's less than 16 by 40, less than eight feet deep, 
and you can find a shape that does fit your needs, well, then we might be a great option for you. Now, the person that was thinking, I just wanted a 16 by 32 rectangle. This is great. Now, all of a sudden, they're all in. They know what they want. They don't have to look any further. Did I lose the person that has a guitar-shaped swimming pool in their backyard? Yes. That's empowering for both of us. And oh, by the way, the morale of your sales team goes way up, way up when you can when you can have that clear language. It also seems like these are things I'm really interested in is these kind of foundational things because it feels like if you don't start here with your like, you know, marketers will we'll call it like might put this under positioning. I don't care what people put it under, but like strategy, positioning. Uh, who who you are, what you're not to your point, right? Like when you iron all this out and then you reflect it in your messaging and in your content, it feels like then that's like, it feels like before you do that, trying to impact like reduce churn or improve close rates and things like that is kind of like, you know, getting a bucket and trying to get water out of a ship while like there's still yeah, it's holes the hamster in it. on the wheel, man. Right, because it feels like, well, you're ultimately like your main problem is that you're sending people that either like aren't ready to buy yet. They had a lot of questions. They booked with sales, but they had questions that you could have answered and not wasted sales time with because they could just be answered asynchronously or they're never like, I think there's maybe a mindset of like, well, we're going to change their mind. Like we're going to take an Asana person and make them a base camp person if we can get them on the phone. But it's like, well, no, like that probably is very, very unlikely. Like probably you either agree that this is a way of working that you want and it sounds appealing to you. Um, I'm not saying it can't happen, but it feels like that's the pressure that's put on sales where like marketing could do a lot of the heavy lifting to say like, here's all these things that we are, here's what we're not, if you agree with them. And then that's where like, then if you do that, then you can start addressing churn even further. Like there may be other growth experiments, but it feels like we jump right to the let growth me, experiments let, or hacks. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Let me give you another example of this. Uh, and this goes back to uh, my swimming pool company. So we have, we, we know that there's three types of in-ground pools you can choose. Fiberglass pool, a vinyl liner pool, a concrete pool. There's pros and cons to each one. You can go to my site right now. And, and, and also, okay, before I tell you what we did, for years, I'd, have, I'd meet with people back in the day when I sold pools. And they oftentimes would say to me, so Marcus, explain to me the difference between a concrete and a fiberglass pool. Those people never bought in that moment because they weren't nearly close enough, like in terms of being down the funnel. They just hadn't had enough thought. I realized if somebody didn't understand the value prop of fiberglass, then we just weren't going to make headway. And it was a pretty clear, like, that makes sense for me or that doesn't make sense for me once we explain it. So I said, let's help them self-identify before we ever talk to sales. So we have a tool on our site that allows you, and we're a manufacturer, allows you to answer a series of questions about your wants, desires for your swimming pool. And at the end, we're going to give you a full report explaining to you what type of in-ground pool is the right fit for you? Mm. Over half of the reports we give out recommend a different product. Wow. Wow, that's wild. Think about that for a second. It's not skewed so that 
it says, oh, well, looky there. Fiberglass <laughs> is the one for you. Right, right. It tells you, based on what you said, here's why you should likely go with this particular product. Now, is that thing a lead just machine? Yes. Is it a cash cow? Yes. Does it send a lot of people down the street? Yes. And everybody wins because of it. We also have a pricing calculator. The first manufacturer in the world for pools to have a, it's a B2B manufacturer, got a pricing calculator. You're like, how do you have a pricing calculator if you're a manufacturer and you don't set the end prices? You see, that's the naysayer. But the great leader says, yeah, but if we could give them some semblance of pricing, would it induce more trust? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's figure out how we do it. So you go to the site. You can select the pool model you want. You can select all the features you want. And, of course, we teach you about each one of the features. And we price it at a range. And it's a big range, but we give you a range. No one in the entire industry gives you a range. So that pricing cal calculator will generate around 100 leads a day, a day during the summertime for, mm. my, for my company. Think about that. That's wild. That's wild. Now, every other manufacturer sees that works. They ain't doing it. They're still living in 1995, man. Doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what, you know, that's why in every industry, there's rule breakers, there's rule makers, and there's rule followers. And what's interesting is the ones that are willing to break the rules generally lead an industry for a period of time. But if you don't keep breaking the rules, eventually they'll get broken again for you and you're going to become a follower. So we see this over and over again. We just saw this with OpenAI and Google, right? So OpenAI, first, first to really put out a great AI tool for the masses. Now, I'm not saying they should or shouldn't have. I'm not here for that. Right, right. But for the first time in probably years, Google's sitting there having late night boardroom meetings and saying, uh oh, oh, wait, we're not first. So the rule breaker became the rule maker. And now Google suddenly is the rule follower and they got a crappy tool called, crappy tool called Bard that people are like, yeah, this isn't very good. That's how it always works. That's, that's how it works since the beginning of time. Marketers right now have more opportunities than we've ever had to break rules in our industry. And let me tell you, in SaaS, ugh, I would salivate <laughs> for that opportunity. Salivate. Yeah. I'm not kidding you. I salivate for it. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to start with. Like everyone's websites have like the same pages, are laid out the same way, the same content. Like you, like, you know, the framework, like you're saying, everyone's following like the SaaS website rule. Like this is what everyone's pricing page needs to have like the three columns that start at the top and like everything, everything you're referencing. Um, all right. I want to know. So for people that are like, okay, I'm, well, no, before I want to, I want to end with this question on, on where people can start to take next steps. Obviously we'll let them know where to follow you. Um, one thing related to the price thing, I think what I've picked up on people that are hesitant to do this, the thinking goes something like this. Okay. If I put, I'm not, I get the idea. I'm not opposed to it, but if I put the price up and they don't talk to me, like when, when I tell them the price on a call, then they'll tell me why they're balking at it and I can explain, or they can push back and I can explain, or they can ask questions and I can answer. Right. So I can understand like 
them saying, well, I'm willing to hypothetically put up pricing, but you know, what if they leave? It's, it's asynchronous, right? And they leave and I haven't answered everything. So where do they start with putting these, like, how can they put pricing on confidently and make sure they've covered all the bases to know that like their website answers everything. Like, do, like, do you recommend doing a lot of this, like on the pricing page? Um, do you recommend doing it? Like, is it all dispersed throughout the content? Where can people, it feels like maybe for some, the pricing should be the last place knowing that they've got their bases covered, that they've adequately addressed all concerns and questions. Then, you know, then they can throw up like the actual number and what you're saying, like the explanation of why, um, should they start there? Should they end with the price having covered all their other bases? Like, how do you recommend, let's just say a B2B SaaS company, since we're picking yeah. on them, how would they start implementing this? Let me, let me, let me start right here, Jeremiah. If all the SaaS companies that are listening to this right now that don't have any pricing on their site knew the actual number of legitimate leads that never filled out the get a quote form on their website because they had no sense for pricing and budget. They would vomit in their mouth as we're speaking. Like if you knew what that number was, you would literally, it would induce a sickness in you unlike any you've ever felt as a marketer. Those were real leads, but you see, you don't know what they were. Now, what you can do is you can look at how many people went to your get a price page and never converted. That's all you can do. But you don't know how many sales you lost and conversations never were had simply because you were the one with the ostrich, as the, like the ostrich with your head in the sand. Ignorance is not bliss online, not in 2023. 20 years ago, maybe, but not in 2023. So we start there. Second, you start with explaining the industry. Get into it. Really, really explain that well. You can do your three-tier pricing thing, but I put that at the end. Hmm. If you have a great pricing page, which I suggest that you have a pricing tab, okay? Pricing page, but it's a pricing tab in your nav bar right? Okay. Real clear. It's going to be one of the most popular pages on your site. And you really explain the thing. Now, you can also, if you want to, if you say, yeah, but I'm scared they're going to scroll down, Marcus, and just go right to the pricing numbers. I'm not going to read about the value. Okay. So then you have, you create a pricing calculator. Yeah, but Marcus, a pricing calculator is worse. No, 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 no. Not a great one. A great pricing calculator, what it does, it actually forces them to learn so as to be able to answer the questions that they're inputting into the calculator. Right. Because otherwise they don't know, right? And so it's as educational to more actually, the focus of a pricing calculator should be, it's teaching them about the voids or the gaps that they have in knowledge so as to clearly define value. I personally want to have both. I'm going to have videos. I'm going to have articles that are teaching a ton about pricing in the industry. What are you really going to spend if you're looking to solve XYZ problem by XYZ software? And by the way, I, I have a bunch of SaaS clients. I got a, some major ones in the UK, Jeremiah. I speak like the stuff that I'm saying, it's not theoretical. Right. I have actual data on this. Stunning how it works if you do this the right way. And what happens 
with leads and what happens with conversations. So give as much detail as you can, as much meat as you possibly can, and don't make the entire hero those three little columns that you have with the good, better, best, or small, medium, large, whatever it is for you. Now, if if a beyond pricing, where do you recommend, you know, for the product marketer or the VP of marketing that's listening or whatever, whoever's in charge of setting the overall strategy for the website, um, you mentioned starting with sales. Is that the place most most companies should start? Go to the sales team, listen to Gong, like listen to the call recordings, and make a list of all the common questions. Amen. And then when That's they're at one hundred percent, Jeremiah, where you start. Okay, you start with the AI tools that I, I which I love to death, and you say, what are the most consistent questions we're getting? Because me, when I hear a question from a prospect, the first thought I have is number one, is that answered on our website? That's, that's number one. Is that answered on our site? Before I even answer it myself, is it answered on our website? Number two, if it is, why are they asking the question? Because somehow I didn't make sure that they had clearly seen the thing. Either on the marketing side or the sales side, they should have those fundamental questions answered. Sales teams spend way too much time teaching, not enough time selling. This is why, especially in the SaaS place, SaaS demos are an utter disgrace as a whole, there's some exceptions. As a whole, SaaS demos are a disaster. You don't have to look any further than any study Gong has done on this. It is so, the state of SaaS demos is a disaster. We spend way, most demos could be given by the person in their sleep because they're not customized for that specific prospect. Yeah. So they just say the same thing almost every time, which is why you look at all the studies done on number of speaker switches. In other words, how much is the uh, company talking? How much is the client or the prospect talking on a call? And how many times do you switch back? The more switches you have, the higher the closing rate. And you have swaths, gaps of space where for five minutes, for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, the engineer, the person that was doing the demo was straight talking. And then they say at the end, does that make sense to you? How's that sound? What a terrible, terrible tragedy that is. That's the state of roughly 80 to 90% of SaaS sales right now. We have to do better. It starts on the marketing side, right, to eliminate some of those redundancies that you see with the questions that they should already know. And then it's integrating that content very, very well in the sales process before initial demos and then customizing said demos so that the first person feels like this only could have given to, been given to me. I'm special. My problems are special. And they designed this for me. That's what the great companies do. But I'm telling you, man, it's rare. And I don't want to, I don't like to poo-poo on, on what people are doing, but that's the reality in the state of where we are, Jeremiah. Yeah. Yeah. I think I love what you're saying. It's like your money is earned on answering the question, does this, will this build trust? And then if yes, now apply problem solving to think about the yes. best way to put it. And similarly, what you're saying here, start, like make a list of all the dozens of questions that sales is getting that, you know, that Gong is recording. How do we answer them in a compelling, clear, helpful way? Where do we put them so they're most likely to be found? And then how do we custom tailor the pitching approach to make that person feel like we're uniquely addressing the concerns and problems that were not on the website because they're completely unique to them that they're coming in with. Um, that's where I feel like a lot of the strategy uh, is driven. And one example of this, I think I've said it in past episodes is 
Um, I had MJ Peters, who's VP of marketing at Colab on, on the show. And like one little example of this, like a really simple thing that she does, but I've like, I've just never heard anybody doing it is they've got three major use cases of the product. They've got three pages for those three use cases. And really simply each of those forms, rather than being like the same form to book a demo embedded on all three has a unique ID and it will trigger to the sales call. Like, Hey, when this person booked, this was the use case they were interested in. So that the SDR or like AE or whatever, isn't spending the first 30 minutes mm-hmm. like on the general spiel, but it's like, Hey, I know you are interested in this. Let's talk. What that's questions right. do you have related to this right. use case? Yeah. That's smart, man. That's, that's what it's all about right there. And it's actually, it's actually not that hard to do. It's exciting. And again, this builds the morale of the sales team. You want sales to get excited about the content marketing is producing. Make sure that is the questions they're hearing every single day. Again, that's where you start. You do not start with top of funnel. You start with the questions they're asking your sales team all the time. And let's see, one, one other thing about pricing, even though I know we've beaten that to death, and Gong has found this in their studies as, as well, and that is when you as a sales professional are on a SaaS sales call, if you bring up price early on the sales call, closing rates go down. Now, you might not expect me to say that, but that's actually a byproduct of not already having a sense for pricing. You see, what right. happens on many on, on SaaS and other B2B sales calls, because the person is so invested in, I, I just need to know first, can I even afford this? Before we go down this road, before you sp- and take an hour of my time, can I afford this? And the they're if the salesperson is essentially forced into it because the person's just persistent, closing rates go down. So this is actually how it should work in the buyer's journey. In the buyer's journey, when they're vetting your website and they're vetting you, pricing should come up early. You teach all about it in terms of solving that problem and the industry and how it works. So you bring that up early and help them get a sense for value. Then you don't actually bring it up again because they have a sense until the end of the sales demo and the sales process. So that's the way it should work. First and last part of the conversation is pricing. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. In the middle, you have all the teaching, all the value. But if you eliminate this concern on the front end and help them say, okay, I at least know what I'm getting myself into. I have a feel for things. Now they have a chance to relax, fully take it all in, and allow it to go where it needs to go. Yeah. This has been an amazing uh, interview. I feel like there's so much practical knowledge here. I'm so grateful you shared it. I want to be respectful of your time. One stat you do share on the, and people should, you know, just, if you're listening, go to YouTube, search Marcus's name, and you'll here's more info from him if you want to dive deeper into this world. Um, one of the stats you shared that I thought was really interesting, and it's probably skewed even heavier in favor of your point now, is... Uh, 70% of buying decisions you referenced were, are made before talking to sales. And so it's just like how, like just to frame the conversation, even in that, right? Like how much more crucial is it to have content that is helping people make the right decisions before they get on sales calls? The two most important stats that any B2B company should be talking about right now in terms of our buyer today. Number one, the average buyer is 70 to 80% through the buyer's journey before they reach out to sales. Okay, what you just said, right? So that's number one. 
that's major and that's growing by the day because I think 25 years ago, internet's just getting started, that number's probably 20%. So today there's somewhere between 70, 80% is growing by the day. Second one, and this is the real gobsmacker, is uh, 33% of all buyers say they would prefer, this is B2B, B2B study now, 33% of all buyers say they would prefer to have a seller-free sales experience. Seller-free sales experience. The future is empowering the buyer to feel like it was seller-free. Now, this doesn't mean they don't ever want to talk to a salesperson. They just don't want to talk to a salesperson until they feel like they're informed, they're ready, and they're not going to make a mistake. That's what every buyer wants. That's what you want if you're listening to this. And if you want this, you can be assured that your prospects and your buyers want it as well. Amen. This has been awesome. Thank you for everything that you shared. Thanks for coming on. Uh, where can people follow along with you if they want to come to an event, you know, buy the book? Like, where do you want people to go? Yeah. First of all, you should be connected with me on LinkedIn. If you're not, if you listen to this, I'm a really good follow on LinkedIn. That's where I put my best content and I'm very serious over there and I answer all my messages myself. All right. So number one's LinkedIn. Get the book they ask you answer. If you're if you have an open heart and open mind, you'll see how much it's not about pools, it's about you, it's about your business. It will just completely shake your paradigm on term in terms of what you're willing to discuss and talk about on your website. You're gonna be flooded with ideas, you're gonna be jacked up, and you're gonna be ready to run through content walls. I promise you that. So I hope you get the book and stay in touch. My personal email, Marcus at MarcusSheridan.com. Marcus at MarcusSheridan.com. If you have a question for me that Jeremiah and I couldn't cover today, don't hesitate to reach out to me directly that way as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.